Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I would invite you to turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're back in our book study, finishing up these last few sections before we come to the end of the book. But these are really important passages with great truth for us to hide in our hearts and meditate on and and understand, and I'm going to probably need a few extra minutes this morning, hopefully not too many extra minutes, but we want to uh, keep it moving here, so we kind of need to move through each each section week by week to, to stay on schedule. Um, I don't think it's saying too much or maybe too little for you and for me to call ourselves or take the label upon ourselves as evangelical. We are, properly speaking, people of the gospel, that's, that's who we are, and for better or worse, that term has been kind of convoluted. But we are people of the good news by nature that we understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and among whom we are foremost. And, um, and that salvation is only possible because of the sinless life, the substitutionary death, and the victorious resurrection of the incarnate Son of God. The Word, John 1 says, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, glory is of the one of only begotten of the Father, and, uh, and that isn't with our physical eyes, obviously. We haven't, we haven't seen Christ with our physical eyes like the original eyewitnesses of his earthly mission did, but we see Christ through the eyes of faith and through his word and by his, by his spirit. And with faith-filled eyes, we've, we've looked away from our own righteousness and our own, um, which is really no righteousness at all. And, um, and we have humbly received Christ's righteousness as if it were our own, believing that that is sufficient, uh, that his work accomplished at the cross and through the resurrection is enough. And so we can say that salvation doesn't depend, depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy and um, peace pardon, even the very person and presence of the Holy Spirit are graciously bestowed on the believing sinner on the basis of faith and faith alone. And that's all possible because of what Christ has done. If you take Christ's work away, you you subtract any part of that or the whole of it, and you and I are the most pitiable people on the planet. No peace. We have no peace. We have no forgiveness. We have no uh, presence of God through his Holy Spirit within us. And so getting the gospel correct is very important. It matters. It matters significantly. Every detail of the gospel message is essential to saving faith. And that's what we have been unpacking in this opening, in these opening verses of chapter 15. So it's not a surprise that Our adversary, the devil, is constantly conspiring and maneuvering to distort and to diminish the gospel in the hearts of the immature and and in the unbelieving. But we have to be careful uh, and not take that bait. We cannot fall into that trap. We cannot make that mistake and fall victim to his deceptive schemes. We have an obligation and a responsibility to get the gospel right, all of it, every part of the gospel Right, and that includes, as we've been studying through this chapter, the resurrection. Resurrection is a vital part of the gospel. Christ's resurrection is important, and the future resurrection of the righteous and the wicked that the scriptures teach, that is also an important part of 
the message of the gospel. There is a resurrection unto life, and there is a resurrection unto judgment. And the Apostles' Creed, which we affirm, was we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that. We confess that because Scripture confesses that. But as Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, there was confusion in their midst about that very thing. The essential component of the gospel, particularly the resurrection, was in question. Um, there were a group of people who would either come to doubt or, for some other reason, maybe even denied that a literal bodily resurrection from the dead awaits every human being. But in casting doubt over the resurrection, what they had failed to consider was how their what-ifs, you know, what if there is no resurrection? How does that affect what will be, what is to come? They didn't consider how their tampering with the gospel undermined the integrity of the message itself and really ripped the heart out of our Christian faith. And so as Paul writes here, as he closes this really, um, it's a long letter. It's a massive letter, especially in ancient terms. As Paul draws to a close, he is reiterating, he is reasoning, and he is reminding us that the integrity of the gospel hinges on the truthfulness of the resurrection. And we need to understand it, and we need to believe it, and we need to confess it and defend it. Now, verses 1 to 11, we saw God's grace. That was what was front and center in the opening verses of the chapter, as Paul reminds us of the common ground that we all hold through faith in the gospel. He says, this is what we all believe, and, um, and they, that, that summary of the gospel is the foundation stones upon which Paul is constructing the rest of his argument about the resurrection that, that you know, fills out the last you know, 50 or 40 some odd verses of the chapter. And he says, if you, if you cast doubt on the resurrection, then you remove the heart of the Christian faith. It is, uh, is taken away. So Paul uses the opening 11 verses to capitalize on our lowliness, our um, helplessness, and he uses that as a foil, as a, as a contrast, if you will, to highlight and exalt the grace of God toward sinners. And then a couple of weeks ago where we paused before Christmas, we were looking at verses 12 to 19, and in those verses, uh, Paul is, you know, having then laid out this common ground of our faith, he gave five inescapable consequences that flow out from uh, a denial of the resurrection. In other words, if, if this is what is true, it, it, or excuse me, if these opening verses are not true, then these are the things that necessarily, by implication, follow that are entailed by that denial. So if you deny the resurrection, these are the things that must be true. And he, he laid out five of them in the verses. First, he shows us that there is no resurrection, as they claimed. Then preaching Christ is in vain. Um, you see that in verses 12 to 14. You know, Paul sees very transparently how their kind of small tinkering with the gospel message, how that has massive and devastating consequences for the gospel. He says, if there's no such thing as the resurrection from the dead, and we all agree that Christ did die, then there's no way Christ would have been raised from the dead. If there's no resurrection, and he says, in that case, our message is in vain. He says, it is without substance. So if you subtract the resurrection out of the equation, you're left basically chasing after the wind. And then he says at the end of verse 14, not only is our preaching in vain, but secondly, your faith also is useless. It's in vain. 
Paul says, if you deny the resurrection, the message of the gospel has no substance. And if you believe that message, that kind of empty message, your faith is in a dead man, just like every other dead man who has gone before him. And he says, what benefit is that? How is that going to accomplish anything? So he lays out that our preaching is in vain, our faith is useless. A third implication, if you deny the resurrection, came in verses 15 and 16, and that is that followers of Christ are liars, are proven to be liars. If Paul, uh, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Paul says, I'm a false witness because I've been running around telling people that he has indeed been risen from the dead when he's done no such thing. If Christ is still in the grave, Paul says, night and day I'm out there putting my life on the line, traveling the world, preaching this gospel message, but, but I have been proven to be a false witness, a liar. And a fourth inescapable consequence came to us in verses 17 and 18, and that is if the resurrection didn't happen, then there is no forgiveness of sin. Um, you know, he says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Uh, the, the, the real tangible benefit of, of the resurrection is that it brings with it the promise and the confirmation that our sins have been forgiven, having been punished not on us, but on Christ at the cross. If, if Christ is not raised, then everyone, verse 18, who has died clinging to faith in Christ for righteousness is perished in hell and they share the same destiny as Satan and all his fallen angels. Hardly a message of good news. And then lastly, Christians, fifth, if there is no resurrection, he, resurrection verse 19, there is, uh, it is, he says, Christians are the most pitiable people on the planet. Right? We have denied all the wonderful pleasures of sin for essentially nothing. And he says, we are the most pitiable people on earth. So to deny the resurrection we saw a couple of weeks ago is to invalidate our preaching. It is to undermine our faith. It is to discredit our testimony. It is, is, it is to abandon us to our sin and ultimately to make us the most pitiable people on earth, having come so close to the truth, but not truly understanding and not knowing. If the premise were true, that there is no resurrection, every one of those conclusions would be valid. But Paul knew, and we know, that Christ has indeed been raised, and therefore all those who belong to Christ by faith have a glorious and a sure hope. And that is where he's going as we come to our text this morning. Verses 20 to 28 essentially function like a bridge, and they transport us from the what-ifs of verses 12 to 19. What if there is no resurrection? All those what-ifs, he transports us from that to, in verses 20 to 28, what will be, what must be. And so in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, Paul moves from the hypothetical to the inevitable. He moves from conjecture and all of their speculating that there is no resurrection and all these things to the consummation of all things. It's just a, just a powerful shift 
in the argument by Paul. And so I just want to read our text this morning, beginning in verse 20, all the way down through verse 28. Paul says this, but now Christ has been raised from the dead and the first, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. We're going to break the text down this morning into three sections, three uh, parts. We're going to see um, the the first fruits of our sure hope in verses 20 to 22. We're going to see the framework of our sure hope in verses uh, uh, 24, uh, excuse me, verse 23. And then we will look at the um, finalization of our sure hope in verses 24 to 28. So um, tried to uh, alliterate it for you. The first fruits of our sure hope, the framework of our sure hope, and the finalization of our sure hope. And I um, need you to put your thinking caps on a little bit more than usual, I guess, this morning. Um, and encourage you, if, if I'm going and you're starting to, eh, and you can't keep up with notes, don't worry about that. Don't take notes. Just listen. I would, <laughs> everyone's like, thank you. You can take notes, but you don't have to record every little thing. We do record the messages if you want to go back. But really, what I want you to do is understand it. I, want you, I don't want you to miss out on something that is uh, that that God has, you know, given us in His Word, just for the sake of uh, of capturing notes. So, um, we begin where Paul begins in verses twenty to twenty-two with the first fruits of our sure hope, the first fruits of our sure hope. You know, the Corinthians, Paul says, you, you've planted these seeds of doubt in the minds of believers in your in the church. You've claimed that there's no resurrection of the body yet to come, and if that were true, it would invalidate our preaching, as we've said. It would undermine the faith itself. It would discredit our testimony. It would leave us in our sin and, and make us the most pitiable people on the planet. But here's, he says, how it really is. And that's what you see in verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, all of the what-ifs of verses 12 to 19 melt away with these few simple words at the beginning of verse 20, but now, or literally, but as it is. That's essentially what Paul's saying, with an emphatic pivot, an emphatic contrast in verse 20. He expresses the way things really are at the present moment. That's, that's the heart of the beginning of verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. And guess what? He says that has necessary implications of its own. The fact that this is true. It's worth noting 
just as an aside, the verse 20 is the final explicit mention of Christ having been raised. He doesn't really say it explicitly or openly the rest of the chapter, but everything else he says in the remaining 38 verses flows downhill from it. Everything flows downhill from that reality that Christ has been raised. And Paul's present concern here is to demonstrate that Jesus' resurrection makes our resurrection as believers inevitable. It is inevitable. And he does this by calling Christ, or referring to Christ here, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the concept of first fruits is a, is a familiar one for the Old Testament saint, uh, and even for those who worship false gods in that day, because uh, so much of, uh, of um, the uh, offerings that were made to false gods, as well as to offerings made to the true God through the law, um, were to consecrate or set apart the, the beginning part of the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest. And of course, it, this imagery has rich Old Testament significance. Uh, in fact, in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, God gives specific instructions for how Israel was to uh, take the beginning of the harvest at, at, a, at a particular time in their calendar, the first fruits, the, the initial harvest of grain or whatever, and they were to offer that to God and to do so in a particular way and in a, with a particular sacrifices at a particular time. And with that in view then, Paul applies that imagery of first fruits metaphorically to Jesus. So he, Jesus, is the first of the harvest and therefore serves as a divine guarantee of the full harvest that is to come. You know, when you and I purchase a home or if you purchase a car, some expensive item, in order to secure that loan, you, you, to purchase the property or whatever that is, you'll be required, hopefully, to put some money down. Put some money down, that's, you know, earnest money is kind of a anti more antiquated term to describe that amount that you pay. But it's meant to demonstrate to the bank, it's meant to demonstrate to whoever is loaning you the money that, yes, I am good for the balance, and I've got some skin in the game, and, um, and the fact that I could even save up some amount of money, meaningful amount of money to give to you in the first place shows that, that yes, you know, I, I will pay you what I have promised. In other words, the down payment is, a, is sort of a gesture to communicate that you will pay down the road what is owed, that you're good for it. And so it is with Christ. He he is God's first fruits, God's personal pledge that there will be a full harvest of those who will be raised from the dead. By calling and referring to Christ here in verse 20 as the first fruits, Paul is asserting that the resurrection of the believing dead is absolutely inevitable. It cannot fail. It has been guaranteed by God himself, who cannot lie. And I think it's Interesting, and, and worth mentioning even here, that God hasn't just given us the guarantee of future glory through his Son in the resurrection. He's also done that through the Spirit who he has placed within us. The, the, Paul uses a similar metaphor to speak of the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer at the moment of conversion. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1 in verse 21 and 22 
Paul says, now he who establishes us with you, meaning the Corinthians, in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Literally a down payment. That's what the term means. Or later on in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians in verses 4 and 5, he says, For indeed, while we are in this earthly tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, we don't want to be disembodied, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, and again, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. The Spirit is the down payment that we will one day be with God in resurrection glory. The Spirit in Ephesians 1, uh, 12 to 14 says something very similar where uh, the Spirit is the down payment, if you will, for the inheritance that we are to receive. The Spirit is the earnest payment on God's part guaranteeing the final harvest of resurrection glory for all who belong to him on the basis of faith. You say, well, how is that possible? How does Christ's resurrection guarantee our resurrection as believers? How does Christ, being the first fruits, ensure that we will be participants in this reaping of future resurrection harvest at the end of the age? How do we do that? And that's what Paul then explains in verses 21 to, to 22. Um, he says, uh, For since by a man came death... By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So these two very short sentences form a, a perfect double parallelism. You have Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ, kind of juxtaposed in succession. Um, verse 21 uses an analogy, and God, he, he shows how God raised Christ as the first fruits, making him, the believer's resurrection inevitable. And then verse 22 drills down a little bit further so that we get it, so that we don't miss the point. The analogy starts in verse 21. He says, by a man came death. By a man came death. Death, both physical death and spiritual death, are inevitable for every human being on the planet because we all share in the sin nature of the first man, Adam. Right? Adam's sin, and this is drawn out in more detail in Romans 5, 12 to 22, but, but here Paul says something very similar. Adam's sin brought disaster not just on him, but on all who would follow after him, all of his descendants. We all inherit a sin nature by default. And that's all Paul's saying there at the beginning of verse 21. But if Adam's sin had far-reaching consequences, so has Christ's resurrection. And that's what Paul's getting at. He says, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So life, both physical life and spiritual life, are inevitable for the one united to Christ by faith. Because every believer shares in that resurrection life affected through the second man Jesus. So Jesus' resurrection brought blessing not just upon himself, obviously him rising from the grave and glorified humanity, but also on all who believe on him, all those who are in union with him by faith. So just as death came into the world through Adam, Paul says, so life came into the world through Jesus Christ. 
And then he, th- this repetition in verse 21 of by a man or through a man, it just underscores the reality of Christ's humanity. He was truly God, but he was also truly man. It, it was fitting that while corruption entered the created order through a man, in the same way through a man that corruption has been overcome. Which, by the way, and this is totally not in my notes, but I'm just going to say it, is why the historicity of Adam matters. It's why the opening verses of Genesis must be interpreted literally and not figuratively or poetically. Because the real man Christ is is the fulfillment of what the first real man Adam failed to do. And so we need to, we must affirm, and we, we have to affirm the historicity of Adam. But the thoughts developed a little bit further in verse 22, just so that we don't miss it. Paul's, you know, he he understands this is going to be read, so he's going to repeat himself. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You know, Adam, he says, in Adam all die. It, It just points out the mortality of humanity because we're related to Adam. We're all in Adam. We're connected to Adam in a solidarity of guilt. And the symbol and the penalty of that guilt is death. Physical death, spiritual death. There's a sense in which we're all, all human beings are in the same boat. And um, just as in Adam's sin brought untold consequences of evil and divine judgment, so Christ's work has brought untold consequences of goodness and divine blessing. So also in Christ, he says, all will be made alive. Now, if you read that quickly, it would seem to say, wow, all who are in Adam and all who are in Christ, they're the same, same group of people, but they're not. And this is what you can't miss. The all who are in Adam are not identical to the all who are in Christ. This, this, as one commenta- uh, commentator clarifies, each of the two Adams act as the head of a humanity, the old and the new. And so not all people belong to the new. And that's his point. This verse is not teaching um, a universal salvation. That uh, everyone in the end, you know, ends up in heaven, in glory. That's not the case. Paul's simply saying that in Adam, all that are to die will die. And so likewise, all who are in Christ, who are to live, will live. So... We can't, um, we can't uh, miss that as he's going through this. And so the question that the text begs of us is to ask is, who are you in this morning? Are you still in Adam, doing your own thing, going your own way, on the road that leads to death, and after that, the scripture says, divine judgment? Or are you in Christ, having embraced Jesus as Lord, as Savior, walking humbly in step with his spirit in accordance with his word? Are you on the road that leads to life and divine blessing? That's what the text really demands us to consider. There's no more important question that we need to answer this morning. And here's the thing that you cannot miss. Christ's resurrection as the first fruits makes one of those two realities inevitable for every human being on the planet. You're either in Christ 
and your life is hidden with God in the righteousness of the Savior, Savior, or you are still in your sins. And if you're still in your sins, the good news of the gospel is that it's not too late. It's not too late that while those who remain in Adam inevitably remain under God's judgment, the invitation of the gospel is that you today can come to him, to the Savior, and throw yourself on his mercy, and he will receive you. Look to Christ and live. Look to Christ and live. All that belongs to him can belong to you. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection can all be credited to you and become yours. He is rich in mercy, the New Testament says, because he loves repentant sinners. He can make you alive with him, Romans 2 says, I mean Ephesians 2 says, he will raise you up with Christ. Our heavenly Father is so full of grace, verse 6 of Ephesians 2 says, he will even seat the contrite sinner along his son in heavenly glory. Just in staggering. So why would you delay? Come to Christ. And if you're in Christ, know that as Christ is the first fruits as Christ is the first fruits, our, the full harvest of our resurrection is inevitable. Secondly, Paul sketches out the framework of our future hope. So the first fruits of our future hope, sure hope, are, are laid out in verses 20 to 22. In verse 23, we see the framework of our future hope. The resurrection of the body is inevitable, but it is not instantaneous. In other words, it doesn't happen all at once. God's resurrection plan doesn't take place in one giant cataclysmic event, but in successive acts that culminate with the finalization of our future hope. Look at verse 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But, he says, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. He says, then comes the end. This term, order, each in his own order, in the original language was a, was a, a military term to speak of a, um, groupings of, of troops in various numbers. And of course, that, that term came to mean any class or any group of people. In this case, it, it has something to, uh, it has some kind of a, a similar meaning to in turn, each one in his own turn. And just as with many other aspects of God's future plans, resurrection and judgment are multifaceted in the scriptures. And we've talked about this a little bit more detail in our equipping our time. Just as the unfolding of God's program with things like covenants and the kingdom and salvation happen, you know, in succession over time, so in the same way there are stages or phases to the resurrection and judgments yet to come. And, you know, we're not trying to overly complicate things, uh, but, but this is, we're getting this out of the scriptures. The scriptures itself teach it. And this is what Paul's getting at here um, in a kind of a very summary, high level way in verses 23 and 24. Paul mentions several stages to God's resurrection program. First, he says, is Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then after that, he says, the end. So right away, we see very clearly that there are, there's steps. 
there are, there are, there are these fulfillments of resurrection uh, uh, power are not in all at once. John, John the Apostle, uh, refers to, again, stages to God's resurrection program in Revelation chapter 20. If you want to flip over there for just a moment, in Revelation 20 and verses 4 and 5, John says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until, after, until the thousand years were completed. This is, meaning the first resurrection, is the first resurrection. So there, what you see here in John's revelation, that there's one group that comes to life and reigns with Christ for a thousand years, and there's another group who are not resurrected until after that thousand years. So from this and a handful of other New Testament and Old Testament passages, we can piece together a framework a, um, it's not simple, but it's, a, it's a, a relative framework to understand God's resurrection program and how it's broken down. So I want to give it to you. It kind of comes in four, four phases, four phases. First, phase one, and again, this is just summary, is Christ's earthly resurrection. We already talked about that. Christ is raised first. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So phase one you'd call it, is Christ. Phase two, he shows us in verse 23, uh, are those who are Christ's at his coming. Uh, this is the resurrection of new covenant saints, both those who have perished already and those who are alive on the earth at that time. This occurs at the rapture. The rapture of the church, which happens and it's described for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 17, this catching away at the rapture, the dead in Christ, Paul says, will rise first, and then believers who are alive at that time will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This happens before the unfolding of the tribulation period, which we see described in Revelation uh, 6 to 19. So that's kind of phase two, this, this catching away those who belong to Christ at his coming, his his arrival. Phase three, while not occurring at the same time of the rapture, involves Old Testament saints and believers martyred during that tribulation period. Um, those who are un, uh, believers under the old covenant and those who die in Christ during the tribulation, there are believers who are saved in the tribulation period they will experience a full bodily resurrection when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation and establishes his kingdom. We just saw that in Revelation 20 and verse 4. He calls it the first resurrection. So that's phase three. So we have Christ, those who are Christ that is coming at the beginning of the tribulation period, Old Testament believers and tribulation martyrs, at the end of the, tri at the tribulation, before the millennium, and then phase four, this is what Paul calls here in verse 24, the end. And then, he says, comes the end. In John 5, John chapter 5 and verse 29, it's called the resurrection of judgment. 
Revelation 20, verse 6, refers to it as the second death. It all is talking about the same event, the same thing. And this all takes place after the millennial reign of Christ and involves unbelievers. Those who are raised, uh, the unbelievers are raised and fit with resurrected bodies, not to enjoy eternal blessing, but to experience a righteous eternal judgment. And they are cast into the lake of fire. And we see that in, uh, in Revelation 20 and verse 6. So there's essentially four phases to God's resurrection program. And uh, it involves Christ, it involves believers before the tribulation, it involves a subset of believers, Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs at the end of the tribulation, and then a final judgment at the end of the millennium. That is the framework. And I realize that that's maybe a little overwhelming, a little confusing, and there's biblical proofs to explain that and fill in the pieces, but it's beyond the scope of of what we're coming at this morning. But Paul lays out that there is an order to things. And that leads us third and finally to the finalization of our sure hope. So we've seen the first fruits of our sure hope, the framework of our sure hope, and he ends in verses 24 to 28 with the finalization of our sure hope. Christ has been raised. The framework of God's resurrection program, while Uncertain as to its timing is not uncertain as to its general order. So we don't know when this is going to happen, but we do know it is going to happen in generally what order. Christ reigns upon the earth for a thousand years, in a sense fulfilling the creation mandate forfeited and failed by Adam in the garden. And then God will execute a final and complete judgment at the end of the millennium on Satan and his angels and all the unbelieving Uh, of all the ages. And when that is complete, when that happens, Christ will exercise at that point a full and complete authority over all things and all people. And that's what you see spelled out in verses 24 and 25. He says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign that is, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Paul begins with the theme of Christ's ruling in verse 24. This rule is currently in operation in the world. Spiritually, there is a Christ rules by virtue of his resurrection. Romans says he has been declared the Son of God, accounted the Son of God, recognizes the Son of God by resurrection as, as a... So Christ rules in that sense. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. But this rule is an effect in a, in not in a complete way now, but in the end of the age, it will be. He, at that time, he ha, will have destroyed all earthly powers, and it says he will hand everything over to the God and Father. The allusion here in verses 24 and 25 is to Psalm 110 in verse 1, as well as Psalm 8 in verse 6. Both of those psalms were penned by David, and they foretell Messiah's triumph over God's enemies. And what Paul reiterates here is that at that time, at the end of the age, all that God has promised he will accomplish. I mean, that, that's, the, 
That's the, um, what's in view here. Christ's rule, which began with his resurrection, must continue until Psalm 110, verse 1, and Psalm 8, verse 6 are fulfilled, until Christ has put all his enemies under his feet. Um, Christ must reign, verse 25. And he is now doing that by virtue of his being the risen Lord, but he must reign until he has brought all enemies, particularly the last enemy, death, he's brought them to heal. So, so in a sense, verses 24 and 25 together emphasize that at the culmination of God's redemptive plan, there will be no governing power, uh, no power of any kind that will not be subservient to Christ. This term abolished basically means rendered null and void. It's not that all earthly powers disintegrate, but they are made roughly, you know, inoperative. All authority other than that of Christ or for Christ is rendered inoperative. He's speaking about what God sovereignly determined, and therefore there is no shadow of a doubt about it. That's why he says he must reign. It is necessary for him to reign in this way. And this is what we need to take away from this section. Listen, no matter how strong earthly powers may seem, no matter how much you and I may fear that the wicked are going to triumph, at the culmination of human history, we have to understand this. It is Christ and none other who reigns supreme. Christ's mission is a mission of eternal resolution eternal conquest, and it ends with all his enemies put in subjection under his heel. That can be in terms of judgment in a negative sense, or it can be in terms of reconciliation through the gospel. But we are all, Philippians, uh, three say, or Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so in a sense, it is for sure. His mission is one of absolute success. So we don't, and this is the point, we don't need to wring our hands reading about or watching the news all the time, paranoid that this whole world is going to spiral out of God's control. We don't need to worry about that. And I would encourage you not to let that happen. There is no existential threat to Christ's rule in the White House, in Congress, in the governor's mansion, on a local school board, in the university. Christ's rule was certain long before Christians occupied any moral high ground, and it will remain certain long after we've conceded it. And so I would point out to you that none of the enemies of Christ are named here except for death. And I think that's intentional because the enemies of Christ are always in flux from age to age. Uh, yes, they op the opposition is similar. The tactics are, and, and the approaches are, uh, resemble one another. But the specific individuals, the specific ideologies that inhabit a, the spirit of Antichrist, as John says in 1 John, they're diverse and they're constantly changing. What we need to know and what we need to take to heart in take heart in is that they will be defeated, including, he says, the last enemy, death, verse 26. The last enemy that will be rendered 
null and void is death. And so by subjecting death to himself through the resurrection of believers at the end of the age, Christ will then have brought every, every facet of Satan's tyranny over this world. He will have brought them all to its final end. Satan's tyranny is no more. And so uh, this verb abolished is, is uh, in verse 26, is in the present tense. And the use of the present tense here to describe what is essentially a future action is meant to prov- provide vividness. It's meant to provide certainty to the reader. Death will be robbed of all of its power, but death is dependent on Satan and sin's curse. And when all that has been dealt with, death as the last enemy will disappear. It's interesting, back in verse 12 of chapter 15, some said there is no resurrection. Paul says, how has some among you say there is no resurrection? But as, as it is, Christ has been raised, verse 20, and so Paul replies, there will be no death. Verses 27 and 28 add an additional clarification intended to sweep away any doubt from the reader's mind. In case anyone thinks that the earthly mission of the incarnate Son of God and the sovereign purposes of the Father and the Holy Spirit are somehow at odds with one another or somehow uh, in competition with one another, he points out that they are singular. Verse 27, he has put all things, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, under, uh, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. So that God may be all in all. Paul's point is that God the Father has given to the Son unlimited sovereignty over all creation. This, however, does not encroach in any way on the Father or the Spirit's sovereignty because they are one. They are one. And it is evident to Paul. That's what he says there in uh, Verse 27, it is evident, it is clear to Paul, and it should be clear to us. Paul's point is that God the Father has given this Son unlimited sovereignty, and while the Son occupied a place of humility and condescension in his earthly mission, having brought all earthly powers to heal and having destroyed the last enemy, death, finally and forever, the one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will once and for all, be all in all. Later on in chapter 15, he says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. God will reign supreme in the heart of every resurrected believer. And so in that way, God will be all in all. This is the answer. Verses 27 and 28 are the answer to the disciples' prayer. You ever prayed it? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the answer to that prayer. Or Paul's benediction at the end of Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the answer to that benediction. 
that prayer. So does the resurrection of Christ matter? Yes, it does. <laughs> and to deny it is to call into question everything that flows downhill from it. In raising Christ from the dead, God has set in motion a chain of events that inevitably culminate in the final destruction of death and God's being once again, as in eternity past, all in all. No sin, no corruption, no opposition, perfect fellowship, communion, all will be made new. The triune God will reign supreme in every quarter and in every way, and nothing will lie outside of God's salvation purposes in Christ. You say, what is that going to look like? What, what will that look like? For that, I invite you to turn with me to the very end of your Bible, to Revelation 22. What, what is this going to look like? I can't give you all the details, but I can give you this. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what that's going to look like. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Blessed, verse 7, is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And that is the takeaway, that we would understand that all that God has promised, he will fulfill. I don't know about you, but having looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament and seen all the promises that God has been faithful to, I would not bet against him. And so we, we trust him, we, we take heart, we find encouragement. And we're convicted, and we're reminded that if we're outside of Christ, if we're outside of Christ, there is a future resurrection coming, but it is a resurrection of judgment. We must be prepared. Christ is the first fruits. He has been raised, and it is inevitable that all who are in Christ shall be raised as well. And what that's going to look like and some of the details and objections, that's what Paul's going to fill out here in the remaining verses of chapter 15. And we'll pick that up next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity, this little preview, if you will, of what is to come. It's really kind of overwhelming to think about it all. It's so foreign to the world we know and things that are familiar to us now that we see with our eyes. But who hopes for what he sees, right? So help us to look with faith-filled eyes, to trust you, knowing that you have raised your son and you will raise us. As an animal die, so in Christ all will be made alive. I pray that every person who hears this message would be found clothed in your righteousness in Christ, that that life would be theirs now in, by possession, by, through the inheritance we have, through the Spirit, and that you would accomplish that salvation purpose in us for the praise of the glory of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, 
Visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.